So when you think of the Wizard of Oz, for many of us, the first thing that comes to mind is when Dorothy lands in Oz and she says, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. But I think her more profound line is when she actually gets back home and she shares what she has learned. And she says, well, I think that, that it wasn't enough to just want to see Uncle Henry and Auntie Em. And that it's if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. What a profound truth about our heart's desire to be at home and the length at which we will go to try to find home. Craig Barnes in his book, Searching for Home, writes, It doesn't matter where you move, how fast you run, or how many new identities you try on along the way. You can't escape the longing for home. Well, the Israelites went looking for their heart's desire beyond their own backyard. And we saw that in the last couple weeks. Moving away from the presence of God, they moved away from the principles of God, and they found themselves in a hurricane of captivity, didn't they? They found another desert wandering, a wandering that left them longing for home. And this longing was a grace gift of God to bring them back home. Craig Barnes, again in his book, says, Whether we want to admit it or not, the longing for home is welling up from the soul. This may be even the most enduring trace of God upon our lives. He has implanted within each of us, within our soul, a longing to be at home, for our soul to be at rest. And he has this for us. God set into motion the historical events that freed those Israelites that were wandering from captivity. He gave them the opportunity and he gave them the resources to go back home to rebuild Jerusalem. They had built the temple. They were offering sacrifices to cover sin, but home was not home. It was still a mess. As we saw in Nehemiah 1.3, as they reported to Nehemiah when he was in Susa, the remnant there in the province in Jerusalem who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Jerusalem was not yet the city that the prophets had foretold it was going to be, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. So God burdens, equips, and sends a man named Nehemiah to go back and finish the job, to create home for God to dwell among his people and for his people to dwell in his presence. And so here we are at Nehemiah 3. Nehemiah has been sent back, as we've seen in the last couple weeks. And Nehemiah 3 is marked by one word that is repeated almost 30 times, the word repair. Then rebuild is in there a couple more times, in case that's not enough. It dominates the chapter. And this word means to make strong or to make firm. Particularly looking at the gates, we see God's plan given to Nehemiah. As Nehemiah said, this is God's plan, not his own, in Nehemiah 2.8. We see God's plan given to Nehemiah to make strong, to make firm his home, Jerusalem, his holy city. And while the accounts of Nehemiah are historical, the realities that they mirror for you and for me are truths that are very significant and very real. 
These truths are go beyond a rock city and an ancient wall. And we see this attention to the gates when we see these truths for us. The gates would be the focal point of the city. It would be how the world would know God's people. It would be how what they would see and what they would identify them as. It would be their identifying marks. The wall would separate them as a nation set apart for God. But the gates would be the point of interaction with the world. They would be the point of communication. How God's people will interact. What goes in, what goes out, gives us a great picture of who God is, where God dwells, and where our souls find home. The first thing we see with these gates is that home is a confessing community. Home, our whole soul desires a place to confess. Whether we realize it or not, our soul is weighted down and it needs a place to confess its own depravity, its own sin, its own sickness. We are sin-sick people if we're honest and we take a look. And we are dying to be at home and we will never be at home until we confess that we are not okay, that we are not good enough, that we're not good people deep down at the core, when no one's looking and when we can be whatever we really feel like being. We will never be home until we can confess this. And that's why this whole rebuilding process begins with a sheep gate. The sheep gate is where the sheep would come in for the sacrifice of that depravity, where the sheep would be slaughtered to cover sin, for us to recognize, for the people to recognize that they wander, that they miss the mark, which is what sin means, to miss God's mark, to miss the very best. To make sure home is an honest evaluation and a place to cover what is uncovered, there is a sheep gate. We cannot be home until our sin is paid for. We will continue to wander until we profess our own sin-sick soul. We will be restless. We will never be at home. These sheep were to cover the sin of the people, but they pointed to a one who would come that would cleanse the people. Ladies, I am so grateful that we are post-crossed. Before they continued to add sheep, and they would have to, I know if they were like me, they would have had to kill sheep four or five, 17, 18, 20 times a day. Because of, you know, the minute you walk back out of the temple, you've had an evil thought because you've coveted so-and-so's outfit. I mean, you've got to go sacrifice another sheep. And they had different sacrifices for different things. I don't think sheep would have been the one for that particular sin. But the point is, they had to continue to offer sacrifices and offerings. We, they, these lambs pointed to the one who would not just cover the sin, but would cleanse our sin. Isaiah 53, 6, when Isaiah prophesied of the one, he says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his way. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't see any exceptions in there. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The sin was laid on the one who would come, who we now know as Jesus Christ. Home is experienced when I personalize depravity. Home is experienced when I personalize it. Depravity is a word we don't even hear from most pulpits anymore. But home will never be found until we personalize it. Until we say, I am sin sick. I need salvation. I need cleansing from my sin. I am a wanderer in my sin. I need a lamb to die and to pay for it. 
because all my best efforts are filthy rags. Isaiah 53, 7, continuing Isaiah prophesying of the one that would come that we now know as Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus willingly suffered outside the gate so we could get in the gate. Hebrews 13:12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Ladies, he walked outside the gate for those three hours in darkness and was willingly separated from the God he loved, carrying every weight of sin outside the gate so I could come in. C.J. Mahaney puts it this way, the personal desolation of Christ, Christ is experiencing on the cross is what you and I should be experiencing. But instead, Jesus is bearing it and bearing it all alone. Why alone? He's alone so that we might never be alone. We're not going to be home until we get this reality. Our soul will never be at home. It will look for its heart's desires beyond our own backyard until we get this truth. And until we decide that we're never going to get over this truth. I loved hearing an interview with Kirk Cameron, fame from uh, Growing Pains, if you're as old as me. Um, and he has come to faith, and, and uh, many of you know he's part of... Um, Ray Comfort's The Way, which is an evangelism um, parachurch organization. And in his interviews, I've shared this before, he has said, when I realized what Christ had done for me, I never got over it. And he has committed his entire life to evangelism, to every interaction being about the sheep, the Lamb of God, that took away the sins of the world. C.J. Mahaney says, the biblical purpose of every conversation you have in every personal interaction is that they, is that, that person who hears you receives grace. Which takes us to the fish gate, doesn't it? Home is a place that is safe for others to profess their depravity. For others to know that they are welcome to come and say, I'm a mess. This fish gate is where men would come from sea coasts, and it was the interaction with the world that they would have, that the people of God would have. These were real-life activities just like you and I have at Starbucks and McDonald's and Ruth Chris, wherever you tend to eat. Real-life interactions, God-ordained appointments in which to have conversations, in which to evidence a soul that is at rest because of the Lamb of God that has taken away her sin. As we do life, we need to remember that the interactions we have are God-ordained, intended to be welcome mats for those who are willing to profess their own depravity. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So whether we're at the gas pump or the grocery store or the shopping mall, whether we are at work or whether we're working out, whether we're at school or whether we're living on our street playing with our kids or whether we're laughing, whether we're at a place of entertainment, every interaction is a God-ordained appointment. 
C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the church exists for no other person, purpose but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, and even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other reason. We are God's people in order to be a safe place for others to profess. We had the most beautiful experience. And I I did talk with her this morning and got her permission to share, but my daughter has had a one-on-one aide named Julia. My daughter is severely disabled. She's a senior at Bullard High School, and so she has a one-on-one aide. And we've been praying for Julia for years. She's had Julia probably since fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade. And I confess that there have been seasons where I have stopped praying, you know, lost my fervor to pray for her salvation. But the Lord had impressed upon my heart to pray more intensely in the last year. And so there have been periods of time and opportunities to share a little bit when she's in our home, we have in our home. And one day she came by on Aubrey's 18th birthday. And she was sheepishly, she's very shy, she was sheepishly at the door and just didn't want to leave. It was time to go, but she was just waiting. And she finally was able to get out that she had given her life to Jesus. I'm so grateful that she knew that my home was a safe place to profess that she needed Jesus. And I regret that I didn't do more in terms of fishing with her. But God planted another one-on-one aide in that classroom who was sharing the gospel very boldly with her that she knew we had been praying for her as well, and so she shared with us. And one of the most amazing parts of the story is that when Aubrey was first diagnosed, many of you know this, so it will be a repeat for a few of you, so bear with me, but for those of you who are new, when Aubrey was diagnosed at five months of age, that sent me into an incredible uh, depression um, in which I just had to just pour through the Word of God. And it was a couple years of, of just seeking what, who God is and, and how he created her and why she is who she is. And, and God changed me and he changed our whole family and he used her life in such profound ways. But one of the ways I got through the early dark days, not proud of this, was I asked my husband, so when she's 18, can she go in a group home? In my mind, that meant I only had to do this for 18 years. On Aubrey's 18th birthday, her one-on-one aide followed Jesus. And when I snuggled with her in bed and told her what God gave her for her 18th birthday, I thought, I cannot imagine you in a group home. Aubrey exists as part of the community of God. She is a welcome mat. for the place called home. There is no place like the one that professes depravity, that is welcome to those who will, and there is no place like home like the one that protects the message of depravity too. And this is the old gate. This is the truth of who we are, who he is. It's the only way home, and it's the only way to stay home. See, ladies, it's not just that we need salvation to come into the family of God. We need to recognize our depravity to even grow in our faith. 
Even the ability to be transformed, even the ability to grow is a gift from God. If we start steering from this message of who God is and who we are, we won't even grow. We've got to go back to the old truths. What are the old truths? The scriptures. What do the scriptures tell us? We all go astray and wander. We need to stay stay with the purpose statements of this word, the old ways, the truth of God's word. It's solid. It's substantive. But it's not stylish. See, we want to come in to God's family and maybe admit our depravity, but now we're all perfect and great. I know I'm not. I don't know about the rest of you. We want to move on to, to theologies and teachings that make us feel good about ourselves. Well, the only way we're going to be at home is when we recognize that, yes, we are a new creation in Christ, and yes, He is making all things new, but it's a gift of God that makes all things new. It's not a pulling up of our bootstraps and shining of our shoes. God is the one who does the work. And when I recognize who He is and I recognize who I am, that's when the transforming happens. Otherwise, it's pride, and God opposes the proud. We cannot give into the temptation to edit or add to the Word of God to make us feel better. We must not sit under teaching that makes us feel good all the time. We must stand against new interpretations of Scripture. If you are learning something new in God's Word that's transforming you, then it's really an old truth that you just didn't know before. Be careful of those who will tell you they have seen something new in God's Word that no one has ever seen before. Ladies, they're all around us. They're the best-selling books at the Christian bookstore today. Bible codes. Little small things within God's Word that if we line up this Word with this chapter and this Word with this one, we can predict things and we can find things that no one has ever known for centuries This will cause heart wandering. This will be a distraction. And why are we drawn to it? Why do we need it? I don't know about you, but what's in plain, black and white, is plenty for me to deal with for today. But I've watched people get distracted by this, and it's happening even in the church in Central Asia. And what happens is, is we get off the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. We stop looking at who Jesus is. And it's just kind of a way maybe we like to control our life rather than surrender our life to the one who's in control. And that's why I was even cautious about these gates and over-allegorizing the gates of Nehemiah. We must be careful. I think it is God's community. I think it is the plan God gave Nehemiah. So I do think it tells us something about who God is and how he wants us to interact with the world. But we must be careful that we don't take it too far. There's enough here, black and white, clear as day to work through, to be transformed by today. Thus says the Lord, stand by the road and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Find rest for your soul. The rest for our soul is the ancient path, which is the timeless truth of God's word that tell us of Jesus, who is the same yesterday today, forever, unchanging, and testifies to the, to the reality that he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
God desires that our interaction with the world, that in our interaction with the world, they see that our soul is at rest. When we're chasing all these new things and ways to make our Christianity cool, do they think we're at rest? No, they see us as restless as they are. They want us to see that we can trust the timeless truth, that we go back to this, even if it's not stylish, because our soul is at rest. Delusion of God's word and additives to God's word only creates wilderness experiences, wanderings. There is no place like a confessing community. It is home for the wandering heart. It identifies who we are and is our point of interaction with the world around us. So home is a confessing community. Home is also a continuous community where we become like him, where we become transformed, where the world sees that we have a continuous dependence on God, a continuous dependence on his presence as we go through the valleys of both dryness, of our own failure, of sufferings, of things that we have no control over that have happened to us. And here we have this valley gate. Yes, we have been saved through the lamb, through his blood, But we need continual saving from the presence of sin that creates these wilderness experiences, these dry times, these valleys, again, of failure and suffering. What the world needs to see is that we don't stay stuck in the valley. We climb up the hill. There would have been a hill up to the valley gate. We climb up to the hill into the presence of God. Whether it's failure or suffering, we humbly and we vulnerably go before the Lord and say, I will do the work like we talked about last week. It's a spiritual struggle and I will expect problems and I will expect pain and I will expect persecution, but I will fight the good fight. I will trust you, Lord. I will not give in to my unrighteous anger, but I will trust you. I'll walk the way up to home. We don't count on ruby slippers and click them back and forth and say there's no place like home and think we're going to get there like that. We do the work. Again, we humbly acknowledge our frailty with vulnerability. And we humbly acknowledge our limited understanding and our sufferings. Again, with vulnerability. Accepting all things with thanksgiving. Charles Swindoll writes it this way. Acceptance is taking from God's hand absolutely anything he chooses to give us, looking up into his face in love and trust, even in thanksgiving, and knowing that the confines of the hedge within which he has placed us are good, even perfect, however painful they may be, simply because he himself has given them. This is a truth that we can only know if we go through the old gate. There's a lot of teaching, there has been a lot of teaching in the church recently that it's okay to be angry at God. I'm going to say something about this and I hope you'll understand the heart in which I say it. Righteous anger is in scripture and it's okay. It's okay to be angry at things that are wrong, at things that are sinful, at injustices, at oppression, at pain. It's okay to be angry at suffering circumstances and evil that's been done to us, but it is never okay to be angry at God. That is unrighteous anger. That says he is sinning. Can we be honest about our anger? Yes. And if we have anger towards God, we need to confess it, because that's lying if we try to pretend we don't. 
but we need to confess it and we need to recognize that his ways are not our ways, that he is doing something, that his hedge around us is love, that there's something he's going to do in this. Ladies, if I would have stayed angry at God with my daughter, I would not be a part of watching Julia come to faith. I can be angry at the brokenness that has happened to her body. That could be a righteous anger. Some could say that to be angry at God is to say that he is evil. The world needs to see us handle these kinds of valleys in a way that is life-giving. God dwells in this kind of humility that says, I don't understand it and I want to be angry, Lord, but I know you're good. I know you're righteous. I will be angry maybe at my circumstances, but in my anger I will not sin. Lord, free me from being angry with you. Show me that you are love. Show me that you are good. Take me back to the old gate through the ancient ways and reveal to me your sovereign goodness. God dwells in this kind of humility and he sets us free and he gives us power and he gives us strength and he gives us perspective and he gives us wisdom. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is where the power is. We are a continuous community where the world sees in their interaction with us that we're dependent on him in our failure and in our sufferings. And they see that we are a continuous community that is continually decontaminating ourselves, which is the dungay, our favorite one of all, isn't it? This is where we take the, where the refuse was taken out of the city, where the stink was dealt with. And there are defilements to our community of believers, to our homes, to our lives, things we have done to ourselves, things we have done to others. And if we want to be at home, if our heart wants to be at home, we must take out the garbage. That goes with the unrighteous anger I just spoke about. Unforgiveness, pride, boasting, idolatry. We must continually keep taking out the garbage. If it's anything like my house, it's several times a day. And that would just be my literal garbage. When you talk about my personal junk, that would be way more often. It all must go through the dung gate. And I don't know, ladies, but I think this is so powerful to the world that we are a confessing community, that we are a continually decontaminating community, that we confess our sin and we want to be cleansed of it. It's huge. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you should be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises that God will be our father, that he will be our home, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness and completion in the fear of God. Now, ladies, we must take out the trash out of fear out of awe for the Lord, not to dump, not to feel better. There's no home in sorry. There's no home for your soul. Home for your soul is what I have done is evil in your sight. I have sinned against you and you alone. 
We name it as it is. We realize that we've disobeyed God and what we have done is evil and contaminating to ourselves. Like Jeremiah said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The world sees that we're home when they see us as forgiven. There's nothing like your soul being at rest knowing you've been forgiven. Where that living water flows back through without blockage. That fountain, the Lord's presence. And here we have those fountain and water gates where refreshment flowed into the city. The Lord wants to be our refreshment. He wants to wash us. He wants to clean us. He wants to have His presence bubble up within us. Decontaminate us. Replace what is foul with what is fresh and pure and clean. It's interesting that the water gate is mentioned five times in the book of Nehemiah. And it's where Ezra will read the book of the law in front of the water gate. Oh, ladies, we need to be washed all day long by the water of this word. It transforms us. It changes us. It teaches us about home, and it takes us home. Phillips Brooks says, Slowly through all the universe, the temple of God is being built. And whenever in its place, a soul by free-willed obedience catches the fire of God's likeness, it is set set into the growing walls a living stone. As we take out that dung and as we get washed in the water of the word, we become living stones, evidences of God's dwelling. Our souls find home, and our interaction with the world, they see home. There's no place like a continuous growing community. It's home for the wandering soul. It identifies who we are. It's our point of entry. It's our point of interaction with the world. Lastly, home is a courageous community. We are a confessing, we are a continuous, and we are a courageous community. It's where the world sees that we have courageous determination to protect home, to protect our heart from wandering. First, we see this protection in the walls of Jerusalem. There's a wall there. In some ways, I look at that wall and I think that's to remind me that happiness is not past my backyard. If it's not in my backyard, it doesn't exist. This wall is the protection that reminds me. And second, there's an offensive way in which we protect our home, and that's this horse gate. You know, the horse gate was where the war, the war horses were inspected and where they left for battle. We protect offensively <clears throat> as God's people. God has created a gate in which his, his people are protected offensively against invaders, forces that want to come into our lives and enslave our minds and then our bodies. And we have the home advantage, the divine power, the presence of God. Listen to what we have, these weapons. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is our horse gate. We have these divine weapons that break strongholds. Destroy arguments. Destroy every thought. How? By taking it captive from the Word. 
the full armor of God, able to stand firm, anticipating His return to take us to our final home where we won't have to break any more strongholds. We won't have to destroy any more arguments. Amen? Isn't it great to think that in our eternal home, the New Jerusalem, there will be no need for hope? (laughs) There will be no need for prayer? We'll certainly be praising. There will be no need to battle. But we stand firm and we anticipate Christ's return to take us to this final home. And that's our east gate. This gate was known by the Jews for one particular event. That was the coming of the Messiah. The gate was shut. Only to be opened for the coming of the Messiah. They let the priests be there on Sundays. But it was evidence that the Messiah was to come. This is what Ezekiel taught in 44. This gate shall remain shut, and it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore it shall remain shut. And they looked to this gate for the coming of the Messiah. As his courageous community, God desires the world to see us long for, anticipate, keep our eyes on the east gate where our Lord will return. It's paradoxical, but basically what the world sees is that our soul is at rest because we know this isn't our home. Isn't that the craziest thing? But it's true. The world sees that our soul is at rest, our soul is at home, because it knows this isn't our home. That we're headed for a greater home where we won't need any more gates like we have in the time of Nehemiah. We won't need a dung gate. We won't need a fountain. We won't need the washing of the Word. For we will have new bodies, glorified bodies. We will be in a new Jerusalem whose city gates are made of pearl. Twelve gates. Each one made from one pearl. Why? Because they are evidence of the pearl of great price, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain so that we might enter in to heaven. Nothing impure will ever enter into this city. Its walls will never be broken. Its gates can never be burned. C.S. Lewis says, At the present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. God was willing. The Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world, the pearl of great price has made a way for you to pass inspection. As you place your faith in Him, you enter in to those gates. For our sake He made Him who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Our righteousness of God in Him is our entrance into the new Jerusalem where, there, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. <laughs> the dreams that we dare to dream really do come true. In fact, the dreams that we don't even dare to dream that will blow our mind will come true. So in the meantime, as Craig Barnes puts it, we are called to leave our desert wandering and enter into places where we will serve as priests to those around us 
calling them to join us in building a righteous kingdom that will approximate, and never more than that, humanity's true home. We have places of interaction with this world, ladies. We have focal points, points of entry, that are intended to give the world an approximation, a picture, a shadow of what is to come. God is calling us from our desert wanderings to discover our home, our home with Him this side of eternity, to stand solid, to be defined by the walls, yet open and accessible to the world through these gates, these gates that mark who we are and how we're different, but are also the welcome mat to those who He is drawing in. Let's pray. Father, as these gates identified your people thousands of years ago, they are timeless truths as to what should identify us and how we interact with this world. By the power of your spirit, truth, cleansing of your word, may it be so. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.